Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute. Those of you who are outside, we do still have some seats in here, and we are ready to get started. My name is David Bowes. I'm the Executive Vice President of the Institute, and I want to welcome all of you here today for our forum. The Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act has been passed by Congress and signed by President Obama, but there's still a question, is it the law? President Obama said in his remarks at the signing, it is the law of the land. But acts of Congress that violate the Constitution are not the law. And that question remains open. 21 state attorneys general, both Democrats and Republicans, have filed suit against the act. They allege, first, that the individual mandate cannot be upheld under the Commerce Clause, Article I, Section 8, the Taxing and Spending Clause, or any other provision of the Constitution. Second, that the act deprives states of their sovereignty. And third, that the act violates the Tenth Amendment by commandeering the states and their employees as agents of the federal government's regulatory scheme at the state's own cost. And that's not necessarily all the constitutional problems. In a Cato briefing paper, George Avery argues that Obamacare probably violates the First Amendment, too, by proposing to use government funds to enforce conformity with official positions by healthcare researchers. The courts will be addressing all those questions, and so will we for the next hour or so. It's my privilege to introduce our first speaker today, but if there's anyone in Washington who doesn't need an introduction, it is probably Orrin Hatch. He is the most senior Republican in the United States Senate, serving since 1976. He's the ranking Republican on the Judiciary Committee and served as that committee's chairman for eight years. Before that, he was chairman for six years of what is now called the Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee. On his official website, I read that he is particularly proud that his family has been in Utah since his great-grandfather, Jeremiah Hatch, arrived there in 1878 and founded the town of Vernal. And on his website, he says that his priorities as a senator are to give taxpayers back more of what they earn, work for a country in which children can be safe, healthy, and well-educated, defend constitutional rights, and cut down the size of a bloated government bureaucracy, all of which would seem to be involved in our topic today. Please welcome Senator Orrin Hatch. How do you get it up? Well, that's good. That's a good idea. That's terrific. That's terrific. Well, I'm honored to be with all of you today. I'd I'm a little bit worried about giving this, uh, these set of remarks because they may be longer, and I just don't want to—I uh, don't want uh, the Obama administration to have a speech tax on uh, what I'm doing here. <laughs> but it's great to be here with you today. This is the first time I've been in the Cato uh, facility, and uh, Cato had an unca uncanny sense of timing for this forum, which occurs between two significant events that bring the Constitution to everyone's attention. The first event was President Obama signing into law the health insurance reform legislation, and the second is his imminent announcement of a nominee to replace Supreme Court Justice John Paul Stevens. Each of these requires that we debate what the Constitution really is 
and whether the Constitution controls the government or vice versa. Roger will address in more detail how Congress ignored the constitutional limits on the legislative branch in passing the new health insurance reform bill. I want to offer some thoughts on how the Constitution's limits on the judicial branch must be central to the process of filling the upcoming Supreme Court vacancy. Let me start with some basic principles drawn from the time of America's founding. In the Federalist Number 78, Alexander Hamilton wrote that no position is based on clearer principles than that legislation contrary to the Constitution is invalid and that it is the duty of the courts to say so. Thomas Jefferson wrote in a letter to Wilson Nicholas that our written Constitution can protect liberty so long as courts do not turn it into a <coughs> blank page by construction. And in Marbury versus Madison, Chief Justice John Marshall, the seminal case of all constitutional law, Chief Justice John Marshall wrote that the Constitution is intended to control the courts as well as legislatures. I think the point is obvious. The Constitution, which is the supreme law of the land and which public officials swear an oath to support and defend, governs government. America's founders knew that liberty requires limits on government. It always has and it always will. Those limits start with that written Constitution which created and which must control all three branches of government. Justice Stevens, who turned 90 a few weeks ago, shows that the tenure of federal judges is about the closest thing to eternal life that we will ever see on this planet. <laughs> Oliver Wendell Holmes, another Supreme Court justice who retired at the age of 90, was walking down the street with a fellow jurist when they passed a young, buxom, blonde woman. Holmes sighed, shook his head, and said wistfully, ah, if I were only 70 again. <laughs> only one full-time president in American history did not appoint at least one Supreme Court justice. Considering some of the judges Jimmy Carter appointed to the lower courts, that may be some proof that there is indeed a God looking out for all of us. But judicial appointments have become increasingly controversial because federal judges have, of course, become increasingly powerful. This year marks the 20th anniversary of Judge Robert Bork's <coughs> book, The Tempting of America, The Political Seduction of the Law. He wrote to explain how the battle over his 1987 nomination to the Supreme Court was, in fact, a battle over judicial power. I reviewed the book for National Review and wrote that it addressed the central legal question of our time, which is whether we are to be governed by our elected representatives or by an unelected judiciary. That is still the central legal question of our time because our liberty depends on the answer. The differences between governing, governing ourselves and being governed by judges is whether the Constitution controls judges or whether judges control the Constitution. Thomas, De Thomas Jefferson said that if judges control the Constitution's meaning, the Constitution would be a mere thing of wax that judges could twist and shape into any form they please. Supreme Court Justice George Sutherland, one of my predecessors as a senator from Utah, distinguished between interpreting the Constitution and amending it under the guise of interpretation. Interpretation, he wrote, is based on an inescapable 
and enduring mandates while amending in the guise of interpretation is, is guided by mere moral reflections. That remains the debate today. Is the Constitution a set of inescapable and enduring mandates that control judges, or may judges use their own moral reflections to control the Constitution? President Obama has taken a side in this debate. When he was a presidential candidate, he said that he would appoint judges who have empathy for certain groups. As a senator, he said uh, that judges decide cases based on their deepest values, core concerns, and what is in their heart. And as president, he has nominated judges who believe that they may find the Constitution's meaning in such things as social practices, evolving norms, practical consequences, and even foreign law. President Obama's nominee to the Ninth Circuit, Goodwin Liu, wrote in the Stanford Law Review, for example, the judges must determine, and this is one of my most enjoyable quotes of all time, that uh, judges must determine, quote, whether our collective values on a given issue have converged to a degree that they can be persuasively crystallized and credibly absorbed into legal doctrine, unquote. What a wonderful statement that has to be. It's off the wall, but nevertheless, uh, that's what we're getting for some of our appointments today. Now, crystallizing, well, he even went, uh, well, let me just say this, such talk of collecting crystallizing and converging, and similar academic gobbledygook may be all the rage these days among the intelligentsia, but it amounts to nothing more than the second version of second verse, same as the first. In the past, I apologize for my voice, I have laryngitis, so I'm doing the best I can. But in the past, other bright uh, professors, law professors, have said that the Constitution's meaning should come from the well-being of society or deeply embedded cultural or social values. All of these, and as many other high-sounding examples as the imagination can conjure up, are simply variations of the same thing. Each is simply a way for judges to control the Constitution by making it mean whatever they want it to mean. Justice Antonin Scalia once described this as power judging and I cannot think of a better description. The bottom line is always the same. If judges control the Constitution's meaning, it does, not, it does not control them and cannot be a peculiar security for our liberty. If judges control the Constitution's meaning, then their oath of office becomes an oath to support and defend themselves. Last week, President Obama said the court should defer to the other branches <clears throat> quote, as long as core constitutional values are observed, unquote. His most important words were, the, were those final ones, as long as what he called core constitutional values are observed. The problem, however, is that judges, just like presidents and senators, take an oath to support and defend the Constitution, not core constitutional values. We the people did not just embrace some values we ordained and established a document. The device that America's founders used to enumerate, separate, and otherwise limit government power was a document. 
The values that can be called constitutional are those made constitutional by the words in that document. President Obama is selective about when he wants the Supreme Court to defer to Congress. He loudly denounced the court's decision in Gonzalez versus Carhartt, for example, which deferred to Congress and upheld the Partial Abortion Ban Act. But since his State of the Union address this year, he has similarly denounced the decision in Citizens United versus FEC, which again did not defer to Congress and struck down a portion of the McCain-Feingold campaign finance law, something that should not have seen the light of day to begin with. I think this speaks volumes about the core constitutional values that President Obama thinks judges should embrace. He wants them to use values that are not within the Constitution to strike down legislation that he does not like, but wants them to ignore values that are in our written Constitution to uphold legislation that he does like. Those sound to me like political rather than constitutional values. Last summer, President Obama talked about uh, talked often, really, about how judges should be guided by their empathy. This year, the buzz phrase seems to be core constitutional values. Now, this latest version must be seen in the context of President Obama's previous positions and how he has implemented them in the judges he has already nominated and appointed. This is the same old thing, just another cloaking device for judges who seek to control the Constitution. This question of what the Constitution is and how much power judges should have uh, uh, as power should be at the heart of the debate over the next Supreme Court nominee. Writing in 1953, <clears throat> Justice Robert Jackson described the widely held belief among lawyers that the Supreme Court, quote, no longer respects impersonal rules of law but is guided by personal impressions from which, time, uh, which from time to time may be shared by a majority of justices, unquote. That view is also widely shared among law professors, and it appears also shared by the president. Politicians these days like to talk a lot about so-called ordinary Americans. The president and other liberals say that if they want the voice of those ordinary Americans to be heard, uh, they can do that through the courts. By more than a two to one, the American people believe that the Supreme Court should decide cases based upon what's written in the Constitution rather than on the justices' personal feelings of fairness or justice. I hope that voice is not drowned out in the weeks ahead as we debate the President's Supreme Court nominee. Now, two-thirds of Americans expect President Obama to appoint a Supreme Court justice who will rubber stamp his political agenda when it gets challenged. The most important piece of this legislative agenda is the health insurance reform law that he just signed. And it is, in, excuse me, is indeed already being challenged in court. My state of Utah is one of at least 18 states that have joined in one of those lawsuits challenging both the mandate that individuals purchase health insurance and the mandates upon states to implement this federal program. Now, one of the people I very much admire, especially in the area of constitutional law, is Robert Roger, who's sitting to my left here. Uh, I want to turn it over to Roger to apply this same theme. 
whether the Constitution controls government or vice versa by looking at the legislative branch and enactment of the new health insurance reform law. As you know, I've had a lot to say about that law uh, over this uh, whole period of time. And I think we're going to find that there will be even more to say as we go on. But I'm looking forward to Roger's remarks, and I hope that uh, my remarks have been interesting to you as well. Thanks so much. Thank you, Senator. And as Senator Hatch said, it's now my privilege to introduce my colleague, Roger Pilon, who is the founder and director of Cato's Center for Constitutional Studies, publisher of the Cato Supreme Court Review. He is an indefatigable speaker and debater at law schools in every state, an incisive defender of liberty and limited constitutional government. He is the author of the best and shortest introduction to the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, stressing that the Constitution creates a government of delegated, enumerated, and thus limited powers in this convenient pocket edition of our founding documents. And because we think all Americans should know what is in America's founding documents, we have distributed almost 4, 4 million copies of this little pocket constitution. And in fact, I think I will give Senator Hatch the 4 millionth copy <laughs> right now. And, Senator, if you have a hundred or so friends who need copies of the Constitution, we'd be glad to supply them, too. I have 535. <laughs> Plus, I wouldn't mind sending some to the White House as well. So. Good idea. Please welcome Roger Pilon. Well, thank you, David, and uh, thank you, Senator Hatch, for joining us here today on this extraordinarily important subject. I'm going to pick up where Senator Hatch left off. Uh, he has argued, of course, that the Constitution limits courts, and rightly so. I'm going to take the other side of that question that he posed to us and argue that the Congress is also limited by the Constitution. Uh, but if Congress will not limit itself, and the president will not limit Congress by vetoing what uh, Congress has uh, passed, as we saw in the recent uh, campaign finance case, Citizens United, then of course it does fall to the court to step in, failing which the court itself is derelict in its duty to uphold the Constitution. Now, to enable the court uh, to act in this case of Obamacare, which is the shorthand I'm going to use for the long title that Congress gave it. Um, some 21 states have now brought suit against Obamacare. Um, just think of what that means from a political perspective. When was the last time you saw 21 states rising to bring an action against the federal government? speaks volumes about what's going on, and indeed that alone may be the most important part of that litigation because it keeps the issue before the country, and of course, November is just around the corner. Um, the um, 
to, to um, review, uh, uh, I'm going to just give you a picture of this litigation. There were originally, uh, in, in March, immediately after the bill uh, was signed by the president, 13 states led by Florida that brought the litigation. Since then, seven more states have joined. So 20 have are in this main litigation uh, undertaken largely by um, uh, Florida Attorney General Bill McCollum. Uh, there is also the litigation from the state of Virginia. Um, interestingly, uh, two of those 20 states uh, have Democratic uh, attorneys general, and with respect to all 20, four of the states um, have, been, have brought an action on behalf of the, of the uh, governor as against the advice, counsel, uh, and instruction of the state uh, Democratic attorney general. So this is a very political issue, to pull it, put it mildly. And just uh, yesterday... Um, we learned that the board of the Pacific Legal Foundation is bringing an action on behalf not of a state, but of an individual with respect to the individual mandate, about which I'll say something in just a few minutes. Uh, just very quickly, the scheduling of this. Uh, next week, uh, on May 14, we're going to have an amended complaint bringing in these other states. Uh, on June 16th, the defendants will file their answer. August 16th, uh, response uh, from the um, plaintiffs. Uh, the first or oral arguments are set for September 14th. So notice we're getting closer and closer to November, and that's all to the good from my point of view. In any event, let's now return to the substance of the matter. Um, there are numerous grounds on which this massive piece, I think it's what, 2,700 pages, was it, Senator, before we finally got through? There are numerous provisions that are uh, and will be the subject of litigation if the Congress does not uh, retract and replace it. Um, and But I'm just going to focus on three, the three that are in this litigation. The first is on the Commerce Clause and the authority of Congress to even be involved in this area, the second on the Tenth Amendment, and the third on the individual mandate and the closely connected uh, tax and fine issue. In so doing, I'm going to be drawing on some of the work that I've done, uh, some of the work that Cato's legal associates have done, particularly on this issue, and from analyses that have been done by our own Bob Levy, uh, chairman of the Cato Institute, and Randy Barnett uh, at Georgetown Law Center, who is also a senior fellow here at Cato. Those were available to you when you came in in handouts. Um, at the outset, however, I need to make it very clear that this is an uphill battle. It's an uphill battle. It's no cakewalk uh, given the turn that constitutional law has taken over the 20th century. And nowhere is that more clear than this argument based upon the Commerce Clause, which begins with the question, where in the Constitution does Congress find the power to take over one-sixth of the economy, commandeer states to establish health insurance exchanges, and order individuals to buy insurance, failing which they will be taxed or fined? I say that that argument surely will lose because we live today under something called constitutional law, which is connected to the Constitution only occasionally. Indeed, uh, for those of you who are lawyers in the audience, um, if you took a standard con law course in law school, you were doubtless told that the Constitution was written in 1937. Uh, to be sure, there was a, a, pre a precursor to that. There were those dead white male slave owners who in the ancient past 
past put words to text, but it remained for the social engineers of the progressive era to retrieve the document from the clutches of the nine old men who had kept us from grasping the full reach of this document and the power that it had to lead us to this brave new world that we live in today that some call Leviathan. Um, now, we all know how that happened. It happened because after Roosevelt won and the progressives were uh, in, in instituted in the government in 1933, and the court found one program after another that Congress enacted to exceed Congress's power under the Constitution, why then, after the landslide election of 1936, Roosevelt threatened to pack the court with six new members. Well, not even Congress would go along with that. Nevertheless, there was the switch in time that saved nine. The court got the message, and it began to rewrite the Constitution without constitutional amendment, which has given us modern constitutional law. All right, now let's turn to the argument uh, that might have a chance, the second point I want to bring, um, because... Um, this is, uh, we're going to be moving, in other words, from the enumerated powers, strictly speaking, argument to the uh, 10th Amendment aspect of federalism um, or the division of uh, powers aspect. Here, Florida and the other states are claiming that the federal government is commandeering state people and agencies, uh, contrary to the court's holding in 1992 in uh, New York v. United States and in 1997 in Prince v. United States, both of which found that Congress was commandeering state agencies to do its work. Uh, in particular, under Medicaid, state-run public health insurance programs receive federal funding subject to federal requirements. States may choose whether or not to participate in Medicaid. Florida participates in the program. An estimated 2.7 million Floridians are currently enrolled. The federal government contributes 67% of the money Florida spends on Medicaid, but that's inflated currently due to stimulus grants, and it's going to revert soon to the 55% historical level. Well, Obamacare expands, expands eligibility for Medicaid drastically. Florida alone will be forced to cover more than a, billion, a million additional people to spend billions more to provide oversight over the newly created insurance markets to enroll new Medicaid beneficiaries and to establish an Office of Health Insurance Commission, consumer assistance, or an ombudsman program to advocate for people in the new programs. Those increased costs, Florida estimates them to run over a billion dollars by 2019, constitute an unfunded mandate, the states argue, in violation of the Tenth Amendment. Now, the problem with the argument is that Medicaid remains a voluntary program. Florida rightly asserts that its non-participation in Medicaid would leave millions of current Medicaid recipients stranded without coverage and that it's therefore not feasible to Florida to cease its participation in Medicaid. Unfortunately, under South Dakota v. Dole, the court held that the federal government may attach conditions to the receipt of federal funds, even after funds have previously been provided without conditions. 
Even though its population depends on the program, therefore, Florida's participation in Medicaid is still technically voluntary, and that may preclude successful Tenth Amendment claim. Still, the states may have a case here, we've argued, based on a theory of unconscionability and reliance. In other words, the state entered this program relying on the rules that were put in place at the time. Those rules have been changed radically. The, this implicates one of the limitations set forth in South Dakota v. Dole, namely that federal incentives must not be so significant as to be coercive. In South Dakota v. Dole, it was, I believe, something like 5% decrease in the federal funds that they would, highway funds that they would receive. Here, the increase in expenditures to Florida are absolutely way, way beyond that. Thus, under the 1981 Pennhurst case, uh, the states might have a case which would breathe new life into the Tenth Amendment. Finally, with the individual mandate, we come to what has seemed to be the most vulnerable part of Obamacare, the idea that Congress can order individuals to buy a product from a private company, failing which they have to pay a tax or a fine. Here, however, we're really moving into the tall grasses, so I'm, I'll try simply to summarize the arguments that you'll find more fully discussed in the handouts you received coming in, uh, the articles by Bob Levy and Randy Barnett. First, note that Congress enacted Obamacare under its power to regulate interstate commerce. Thus, the question, second, how does that power entail a further power to compel individuals to buy insurance, much less to tax or fine them for failing to do so? Previous cases stretching the commerce power beyond all recognition enacted prohibitions, not compulsions. Here, Congress going even further into wholly unprecedented territory. Remember the Rehnquist Court in 1995 in the Lopez case found that Congress had exceeded its power under the Commerce Clause when it enacted the Gun-Free School Zones Act. Texas had that authority. The court held not Congress. Then in Morrison in 2000, the court expanded its holding in that. But then in the Rache case in 2005, the California medical marijuana case, the court backed off. So it's hard to know if there's anything left of the Rehnquist court's effort to revive enumerated powers federalism. This, however, goes in a step further. Those cases and other cases like Wickard v. Filburn had co Congress regulating in order to prohibit certain kinds of activities. Here, Congress is regulating to compel you to buy a private product. Never has the court gone there. The third point then is this, if you fail to buy the government dictated insurance, you'll be taxed through the Internal Revenue Service, but what kind of a tax is this? Or is it a fine? It's not a revenue raising tax, its aim is to coerce behavior. And it doesn't meet the constitutional requirements for income, excise, or direct taxes. It's not a tax on income. And if it were an excise tax, it's unconstitutional because excise taxes have to be uniform throughout the United States. And this tax varies by location. Finally, uh, it's a direct tax. Those have to be apportioned among the several states, and this one isn't. In the end, this isn't a tax but a fine aimed at regulating behavior. But if that's the case, then fourth, Congress can't use its taxing power as an indirect way to regulate behavior unless that regulation is authorized elsewhere in the Constitution. That's Bailey v. Drexel. And after a case called U.S. v. Karinger, 
the court isn't going to look behind Congress's assertion that it's acting under its commerce power and speculate whether this really is an act under its taxing power. Indeed, set aside Obama's assurances that he would not raise taxes, Congress expressly exempted this penalty from the normal enforcement mechanisms of the tax code. And so we're back to the Commerce Clause and to the question with which we began. Can Congress, in the name of regulating interstate commerce, take the unprecedented step of using that power to compel individuals to buy products from private parties? And so I come back to Senator Hatch's question, does the Constitution limit government or does government limit the Constitution? Does government control the Constitution or does the Constitution control government? Let's go back to the founding to try to answer that question. Remember that during the ratification debates, there were two main camps. There were the anti-federalists who were first out of the box publishing their arguments that this new document gave the national government too much power. And what did the Federalists say in response? They said, no, it doesn't. Here are all the checks and balances we've put in this document to make sure that government does not get out of control. In other words, there were two camps there. The anti-government camp, namely the Federalists, and the even more anti-government camp, the anti-Federalists. To use the term batted around today, there wasn't a socialist in the bunch. Nonetheless, we have come to the point where we can pass legislation like that and think nothing of it and think that it is perfectly consistent and authorized by the Constitution. This is the fundamental question before us today. It is the question that the Tea Party people are bringing back to the fore when they ask repeatedly, take back our Constitution, give us back our Constitution. Thank you. Thank you, Roger. Um, I hope we have just a little bit of time for questions here, and we have a lot of people, so I'm going to ask that questions be kept short. And uh, since we have two people with microphones, I'm going to try to speed things up by taking a question here and then take a microphone over here. Andrew? Hi, my name is Stephen Hank and no affiliation. Um, I just wanted to ask you both, um, with regard to selection of Supreme Court justices, um, which I think is the real underlying problem that we're really talking about today. Um, so why has it never been suggested that the, a Supreme Court justice should not be a lawyer? And I'm a lawyer. Because I don't think they, they have a sense of the, the document of, of what a constitution is. They are so focused on the, on the particular language and how to construe it, whereas political scientist or maybe even an economist might be met better suited. And if we had selected Supreme Court justices from uh, who were bound to swear by the, to uphold the Constitution, I'm sorry. Uh, anyway, my question is, do you think that would be a good idea? I'm sorry. Well, and does this work? Yes. Oh, yeah. Okay. The Constitution doesn't require that uh, justices be lawyers, and, uh, and some people think that's a very good thing. Maybe you do. Uh, but it, but, and I've seen some excellent non-lawyers on, uh, on the Judiciary Committee uh, up in the United States Senate who have gotten on top of some of these issues and, and have done a very good job. So there's no reason why 
we couldn't, except that it would be almost impossible to get through the confirmation process if the person's not a lawyer. It's almost uh, impossible to get through the confirmation process if you're not a sitting judge. Uh, there's no reason why a non-sitting judge or somebody who's never sat in a courtroom uh, cannot be uh, picked uh, as a Supreme Court justice. Uh, in fact, some of our greatest uh, justices uh, really never had much uh, experience in a courtroom. Yep. I don't think it's a good idea to pick somebody who's not learned in the law, and they, they would have to be very learned in the law. Uh, like you say, there might be some uh, political scientists or some uh, uh, professors of the law who are not lawyers who, uh, who, who might be able to, to do a very good job. There's no reason why, as I've said on the Judiciary Committee, why you have to be a lawyer to sit on the Judiciary Committee and understand some of the earth-shaking issues that come before that committee. To put another uh, aspect on your question, the lawyers are steeped in clause-bound uh, approach to the law because that's the way they're taught. Indeed, um, <clears throat> you look at the average con law text. My text in constitutional law didn't even have a copy of the Constitution in it. I assume the editors thought that, well, judges don't read it. Why do the uh, law students need to read the Constitution? <laughs> and so um, uh, you're absolutely right that a person who is not a lawyer will take a more global view and will ask the kinds of questions that go to first principles. Uh, unfortunately, that gets you only so far. And then when you get into the weeds that I spoke about today, then you have to have some gr grasp of how constitutional law has evolved from the Constitution and how to get back to the Constitution. And that takes some technical uh, expertise to do. But you, but you also note that one of the leading contenders for this Supreme Court uh, nomination is, uh, is Judge Wood. And Judge Wood comes from the Seventh Circuit where there are two tremendous conservative intellectuals who have made their name primarily in, in, uh, in the economics of law. And, uh, and there may be somebody who is not a lawyer who could fit in that category and, and try these cases. Or maybe there's somebody who is a great expert on intellectual property that could sit on the Federal Circuit Court of Appeals where all of these uh, patent and copyright and other IP issues come. So there's nothing that says it can't happen, but uh, just practice and experience and history says it won't happen. Yes. Uh, thank you. Kim Monk with Capital Alpha Partners. Two quick questions. Number one, can you please comment on the issue of severability? What happens, for instance, if the individual mandate struck down, what happens to the rest of the law? And second, I'm wondering, I assume that Democrats used outside um, legal experts and scholars to uh, advise them on these issues in advance, and I'm wondering if, you, if we know who these people are and if they've done any writing like you guys have. Thank you. Uh, I, I don't think there's a severability clause in the document. With respect to the individual mandate, of course, that's the Achilles heel, because without the individual mandate, what you will have is the adverse selection phenomenon kicking in. People will wait until the house catches on fire before they, ca they buy fire insurance, and the analog here is exact, and that will undermine the whole program. That's why they included it. Um, and so that's why so, many of the, so much of the litigation goes at that Achilles heel. Uh, as re with respect to those who advised, there are the usual suspects on the left who are saying there's nothing unconstitutional about that. They're the same people or their forebears who gave us the reading of the Commerce Clause that we live with today. And therefore, they are essentially people who believe that government is there to do anything and everything. Well, in my opinion, there are also some other unconstitutional aspects of the health care bill, the excise tax that... Uh, 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 on high-cost insurance plans, it, 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 
according to the bill, applies differently in some states than in others. And that cannot be the case. Excise taxes have got to be uniform under the Constitution. And, uh, and that's under Article 1, Section 8 as well, as I view it. The, 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 this bill also requires, mandates, that states pass certain laws, regulations, and that they spend, spend state funds to, uh, to implement this federal health insurance uh, reform legislation. And that may be another constitutional issue that, uh, that has to be uh, covered and, and looked at. Uh, uh, they're a long way from, uh, uh, from having this bill be absolutely accepted. Uh, let me just add that uh, I just told the president today personally that uh, the bill isn't going to work well, and in the end, uh, they'll be able to say, uh, well, it doesn't work, so we need a single-payer system. And that's what they're after anyway. It's what well, that, that of course, is the dirty little secret of this, is yeah, that this a, is a Trojan horse for single-payer. Yeah, and everything has been, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, they're, they're really, really pushing. Why do you think that 16 million of the 32 million uh, so-called new insured, newly insured, are going to be pushed into Medicaid? Now, they'll say, well, the federal government will pay for two years of it, but what happens at the third year? States are $200 billion in deficit as we sit here. How are they going to handle it? And most governors are starting to say, how are we going to handle it? At that point, guess what they're going to say? Well, okay, the federal government will, but to do that, we're going to have to have a single-payer system, a one-size-fits-all approach towards health care. If we go that way, to me, that would be one of the most unconstitutional things we could do, but nevertheless, that's what they have in mind, and uh, some of them may not be that smart, but I think most of them are. Front row of the balcony. Yes, thank you, thank you. My name is Eric Kinjemi, and this is uh, my second event here. I'd like to thank Senator Hatch for coming out. Uh, the, the question is directly um, based upon what my belief is the health care bill as a partisan bill. And my personal research that goes uh, throughout the past uh, year or so, and reading books and so forth, goes to show how the House of Representatives themselves have been limited for the past hundred years and uh, pegged to the growth of... Uh, the United States population. So I believe any bills or anything that's passed through Congress has not actually been truly representative of the people that have allowed the um, representatives to be represented in the federal government. So I'd like to get his uh, opinion on um, how the effects of uh, limited House of Representatives uh, affects... Well, as you'll notice, this was a totally partisan pass bill. Now, I've made the point that if you can't get 75 to 80 votes... Uh, on legislation that affects one-sixth of the American economy, you know it's a lousy bill. And it is a lousy bill. And to have Republicans, Republicans would like to have health care resolved. Uh, they would work very hard on it. I've worked on a lot of health care bills over my uh, 34 years in the Senate. But uh, if you can't get some, and, and, and you know, they were working to just get one senator to vote with them, then they would have called it bipartisan. That's a joke. And uh, in the House, uh, they did get one in, in the early stages, but uh, even he withdrew after he, started, after he saw what this bill really turned out to be. Uh, that didn't stop them from uh, claiming that this is uh, the most wonderful bill that you've ever seen. We have time for one last question over there on, on my left. It's uh, Arnold King and... Uh, I got a question. I'm a uh, 
the 21 out of state that filed a lawsuit against the uh, Obamacare, do you know what kind of constitutional uh, law they were talking about? In other words, do you know what aspect of the uh, constitutional law or the rules that they were trying to uh, look at as far as Obamacare concern? The, uh, they were basing their claims on several points in the Constitution, in particular on the uh, division of powers between the federal and state governments. Um, the uh, states do retain a substantial degree of power, even under modern constitutional law, and this uh, particular um, uh, piece of legislation essentially takes over uh, whole areas that have been left to the states, and indeed it commandeers state agents to carry out federal mandates. And as I said, the New York and the Prince cases of 1992 and 1997 address that issue directly. He covered it in his, uh, in his opening remarks. I thought that was uh, terrific what he said. And uh, let me just repeat it. He said, 21 state attorney general from both parties have filed suit against the act. They allege, one, that the individual mandate, quote, cannot be upheld under the Commerce Clause, Article 1, Section 8, the Taxing and Spending Clause, or any other provision of the Constitution. Two, that the Act deprives states of their sovereignty. And three, that the Act violates the Tenth Amendment by commandeering the states and their employees as agents of the federal government's regulatory scheme at the state's own cost. And, and uh, I have to say that uh, I've really enjoyed listening to Roger uh, Pilon's uh, uh, discussion here because uh, he covered, uh, I think, the constitutional issue pretty well. All right. Thank you very much. Senator Hatch has to get back to the Hill, so we're going to cut things off here. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you.